them everything that was written in Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning himself. That's the goal of this new curriculum, the Gospel Project. For kids who go right through our Sunday school with us, uh, they'll cover the entire Bible story at uh, uh, an age level that's appropriate to them. Once every three years, uh, they'll get through it three times in total. Libby, Lindsay and Marcy are going to be training and equipping teachers very intentionally, providing materials to make sure that that journey is as captivating and as clear as possible. But it doesn't have to stop on Sundays. And that's kind of the purpose of calling our attention to it here. We would love all of us who are parents to uh, partner with us in this project. Because God has not taught us to subcontract out the spiritual education of our children, has he? Deuteronomy 6 impresses it on parents and on dads in particular to know the story ourselves and to teach it to our children. And we want to equip you to do that. In the next few weeks, we're going to be handing out decks of cards to every uh, family in our church. One card per week for the whole of this three-year program. And together, those cards fit together to present the complete story of the Bible. Uh, calling out all the amazing ways that every part of it builds towards the good news of Jesus. So will you stick those cards up around the walls of your family room week by week? Will you read those stories over the dinner table? Will you commit yourself maybe to mastering one piece of it as a family and then coming and teaching that on a Sunday? Will you pray that God will really work through this whole thing and anoint it um, so that our kids might be captivated by this amazing unfolding story because it's our heart's desire that they might grow on to love and know it and be able to share it and live in the light of it um, and that that change in them that investment will last a lifetime so will you uh, join with us are you in yeah all right we are so in okay so let's switch gears now and we're going to move to our message grab a bible if you don't have a bible in your hands you're definitely going to want one uh, so raise a paw um, if you need one And we're going to be in Matthew's Gospel here this morning. Um, The section that we have runs all the way from chapter 3, verse 1, through to chapter 4, verse 11. As we go through this series, you'll know that we're moving in quite big chunks. Um, Grab yourself one of these if you haven't got one already. They're on the Connection Center just outside. This is a kind of map of where we're going in Matthew and what we're going to be studying each week. The goal is that you can have it so you can be bringing that into your own quiet times and, and time with God. And then on the back, there's even a set of study questions that can help you work your way through those passages and uh, uh, get your teeth into it before we study together on a Sunday. So for brevity, I'm just going to read the central piece of it. Uh, We're going to read Matthew chapter 3, verse 3, sorry, Matthew chapter 3, verse 13 through to 17, the story of Jesus' baptism. So will you stand with me uh, out of respect for the fact that these are the very words of God and let's read together. Matthew chapter 3, verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you come to me. Jesus replied, let it be so now. It's proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending on him like a dove. And alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. This is God's word. Do take a seat and we'll pray together. Heavenly Father, we want to come before you and pray now, uh, not because it's traditional in our church to do so, but because we need to and because we want to. Jesus, we acknowledge our need that we are just sheep and you are the great shepherd. And it is not within our capacity to work you out. If you don't speak from your side and tell us what you are like, we will always be scrambling in the dark. We are not able to work out what this amazing, transcendent God who has declared himself here in the Bible is unless he speaks. So would you open our eyes and ears that we might know it? But we also want to, Jesus, because we love you and um, because we know that you're present with us here and it would just be the craziest thing in the world if we were sat with the author of a book and we had questions about what he said, not to ask him. 
And so, Jesus, would you open our eyes? Would you come and guide us through this amazing piece of scripture? Would you lead us uh, into the, uh, some of the depths of what it means? And we pray that you might just fill our hearts with praise and gratitude and uh, knowing what we must do as we walk away from here trying to live in the light of it. So in your great name we pray. Amen. Okay. So welcome back into the world of Matthew's gospel. Um, And as I've been studying this, it's really kind of jumped out to me. It reminds me of a well-crafted film script. You know how movies often uh, begin with some kind of vignette from the past, don't they? Uh, That gives you context for the events of the plot that's about to unfold. We get some snapshot from the central character's childhood, maybe. Some formative event, some moment that sheds light on uh, the present and gives us as the audience privileged information about what's coming in the future. And Matthew is like that too, isn't it? Here in chapter 3, we've jumped forward 25 years from the events that we read about in chapters 1 and 2. But by giving us that backstory, by telling us about the events that were hidden from the crowds that Jesus first met and ministered to when he kind of burst onto the scene, Matthew has set an expectation in our minds, hasn't he? We know about the strange happenings surrounding Jesus' birth. We know that Joseph the carpenter isn't really his father. We know about the shepherds and the angels and the magi. We know that secreted somewhere up in the rural north of Israel, there is something, someone truly extraordinary. It reminds me a little bit of the opening sequence of the first Superman movie. Do you remember that? As the audience, we're given some backstory there, aren't we? We see the, the last moments of Superman's dying home planet of Krypton. And uh, we see his parents sending him to Earth in a space capsule, uh, even though he's just a tiny baby. And uh, we have the privilege of seeing what happens when he arrives, when he's found at the fiery landing site of his spacecraft by an elderly farming couple who have spent their whole lives longing for a child. And uh, we see them take him into their home with the intention of raising him as their own son. But then it's as if the camera kind of shuts down and the, uh, the theatre falls silent. And we don't hear anything more about this kid until he's grown up to become almost a man. But because of that introduction, we're all on the edge of our seats, aren't we? Because we know what nobody else knows. We know that Clark Kent is no ordinary farmer's son and that he can do things that no ordinary farmer's son can do. Well, that's how we should be feeling when we reach the beginning of Matthew chapter 3 here. After the amazing story of Jesus' birth and early life, it's as if the camera shuts down and the theatre falls silent. But then in chapter 3, verse 1, suddenly the narrative springs back to life. In those days... John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Out of nowhere, then, a new character appears. His name is John the Baptist. And uh, we're familiar with all this, aren't we? Um, We've heard the Sunday school story, so it doesn't surprise us all that much to hear about this guy uh, coming and preaching and baptizing people in the Judean desert. Even the whole camel's hair outfit and the... uh, The slightly curious choice of diet seems strangely normal to us, doesn't it? Because we've heard it so many times. We think, yeah, John the Baptist gets people wet, gets things ready for Jesus. I have a category for him. But if we want to understand this right, we need to grasp the fact that that is not how the people who first heard John preach would have reacted at the time. Remember, they hadn't heard our Sunday school stories and they had no idea who Jesus was. They did have a category for John, but it wasn't the category that we put him in at all. The kind of person who preaches a message of repentance in the Judean desert is a prophet of God. And Israel hadn't had one of those for 400 years. In fact, that was the big spiritual issue of the time. Where in the world was God? And where were his representatives? The people of Israel in the first century looked back on a history in which God had spoken. Time and again in the Old Testament, we read that phrase. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. Then the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Then the word of the Lord uh, came to Elijah. But all of it stopped 
when the people returned from exile. I wonder whether you remember that story. The Jews came back to Jerusalem from Babylon and they rebuilt their temple and they dedicated it and they sang actually the very same song that Solomon and his people sang on the day that the presence of God descended on the first temple. But nothing happened. God's presence did not return. God did not speak. The word of the Lord did not come to anybody. You remember in the text, it says that the old men wept when they saw it. That's why. Not that the temple was so small, but it didn't have an occupant. Jewish writers look back on this time when the prophets ceased to appear among God's people. And they uh, see it as the time when they lost the voice of God. And so they waited. We get a really good illustration of that from Jewish history, actually. If you go back to 168 BC, when, as some of you might know, the altar in the temple in Jerusalem was desecrated by the ruler of the day, Antiochus Epiphanes. And Jewish historians record how um, God's people responded to that event. And we're told that they went in and finally they were able to rebuild uh, a new altar. Um, But we're told that they stored the old stones, the, uh, the desecrated stones from the altar that had been there before. They stored them in a convenient place on the temple hill until a prophet should come to tell them what to do with them. Isn't that striking? The voice of God had departed from Israel. They did not know what to do. They were waiting year after year for God to return and speak again. And now, all of a sudden, the long wait is over. But as the people looked at John the Baptist, they realized that he was not just another prophet, as if that wasn't remarkable enough after all these long years of silence. John was a very particular prophet with a very particular task. Let me take you um, back to two kings for a moment here. No need to turn there. And I'm going to read you an interesting little incident from the life of King Ahaziah. Ahaziah was the son of King Ahab. Nasty piece of work like his dad. And there uh, comes a point in his story where, of all things, he falls through a lattice in his bedroom and he's injured. And he sends message, messengers to find a prophet of God to ask whether he is going to survive. And uh, the messengers duly find a prophet and they return to the king with bad news. But listen to the exchange that's recorded between them. It's very interesting. The king asks his messengers, what kind of man was it who came to meet you and told you this? And the messengers reply, he had a garment of hair and had a leather belt around his waist. Now here's what that description tells the king. He says, that was Elijah the Tishbite. So do you see John now the way that the people of his time would have seen him, with clothes made of camel's hair and with a leather belt belt around his waist? This guy thinks he's Elijah, and it's not just the clothing. Elijah lived and spent most of his ministry out in the Judean desert as well, didn't he? And the place where John is preaching now in the desert across the Jordan is the exact spot where Elijah was last seen before he was taken up to heaven alive. So what, you might ask? What's so important about John apparently setting himself up as some kind of Elijah tribute act? Well, it's a big deal because the very last prophet to speak in Israel... The very last one before that yawning gap, before those 400 years of silence, that prophet had signed off with the following message. You can actually read it in your Bibles in Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. It's literally on the page before the start of Matthew's gospel. Malachi says this, or God says this through Malachi. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. So if we were watching these events unfolding at the time, I imagine our excitement about the fact that a prophet was speaking in Israel again would have been quickly replaced by blind terror. In first century Jewish thought, the return of Elijah heralded the end of the world. And that description fits pretty well with the message they heard from John, doesn't it? We can picture the scene. John's arrival causes quite a stir among the religious authorities of the day. They decide that they need to go down and check him out. The Sadducees go down to see him. These guys are the Jerusalem set, uh, the priestly aristocracy, the upper class. 
and the Pharisees go down to see him. These guys are the popular teachers of the day. Between them, they hold pretty much a monopoly on truth about God in their world. And they go out to meet John and they get smote. You brood of vipers, he says to them. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? He treats them to a preview of Jesus' parable of the talents. He tells them that they're sitting on God's property, managing it for their own benefit, but that God is about to return and kick them out. The axe is at the root of the trees, says John. And that's our introduction to his ministry. So are we hearing it right? John is not the comfortable figure that we've got used to at all, is he? If we want to feel what it felt like to hear John preach, the best power I can think of is to give you this bit of audio. What sensation does that create in your guts? I think that's exactly the sensation that John's preaching would have caused in the guts of his hearers. John's ministry said, run for your life. Get to safety before God's king comes to clear his threshing floor and burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Terrifying. All of this then provides quite an introduction to the part of the text that we read together, doesn't it? We've got to see it in that context. This is the moment from, for which uh, Matthew has been deliberately whetting our appetite as we've been going along here. The moment when the adult Jesus finally steps off out of the shadows and out onto the stage. But now if we're reading it right, we're not just uh, anticipating the wonderful things that this son of God is going to do, are we? We're fearful that he's come to do something terrible. We're fearful that he's come to reclaim ownership of what is his and put his tenants to the sword. And that's not entirely wrong. But it's not entirely right either. And that's the tension that I think Matthew wants us to feel here. Jesus doesn't enter the narrative on the steps of Caesar's palace in Rome, does he? He doesn't enter at the head of an angelic army, although, well, he could. He enters the narrative by the Jordan River. He's traveled down from his home in Galilee to be baptized. And that's not what we're expecting. Certainly isn't what John was expecting, is it? We read that in verses 13 and 14 of our passage. Jesus came down to the Jordan to be baptized by John, and John tried to deter him. And we can see why, can't we? Because what in the world is Jesus doing offering himself for baptism? Baptism is John's symbol of repentance. Like many other prophets in the Old Testament, he communicates truth about God in actions as well as words. And in these actions, he's communicating God's command for us to recognize our sin and turn our backs on it. John's baptism told the people who came out to him that they were dirty. And Christian baptism still does that today. That's what the baptism tank here this morning is communicating. Baptism speaks to a world full of people living like they own the place. Living like the gifts that we have are ours by right and that no thanks is necessary. Living like our indifference to the plight of the needy doesn't mean anything and that there's nobody there to notice. And it tells us that because of that, we reek. We stink to high heaven. Our most profound need is to wash. And baptism provides the place where we can do it. It invites us to go down into the water as a symbol of the miraculous fact that God is willing and able to wash it all away. But that still leaves the question, doesn't it? Why did Jesus do it? Why, in fact, was it the very first thing that he did? Some people say that this is proof that Jesus wasn't really God. They argue from his baptism that Jesus was just a person like you and me who had sins that needed forgiving, just like you and I do. But they don't seem to have read the rest of the story, do they? I don't know about you, but when I read through the rest of Matthew's gospel, the Jesus I find there doesn't remind me of me at all. I don't know many other people like you and me who can heal the sick and raise the dead and who still storms with the word. These guys want to tell us that Jesus is something that Jesus' life in itself insists he isn't. 
Other people say that Jesus was putting himself in our shoes. We are commanded to go through baptism and he submitted himself to that command as well to kind of identify with us. And I think that's closer to the mark, but it still doesn't quite connect the dots, does it? The book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus feels sympathy for our weaknesses and that he was tempted like us in every way. But it doesn't tell us that he shared our experience of sin. So it's hard to work out why he felt the need to be baptized like us, isn't it? And the story itself seems to be asking for something more than that. Jesus answers John's objection in his own words, doesn't he, in verse 15. Let it be so now. It's proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Now that Greek verb that we have translated fulfill there is a very significant verb in Matthew's gospel, which is all about fulfillment. It has the sense of bringing a matter to its desired or intended conclusion. So what we have to ask ourselves here is, in what sense does Jesus' baptism bring righteousness to its desired conclusion? In what sense is it achieving the intended end of righteousness? The descent of the dove is suggestive as well, isn't it, don't you think? Doves and water go together throughout the Old Testament. In the flood story, do you remember Noah releases the dove and the dove uh, settles on dry land? And the symbolism there is powerful, isn't it? God has just wiped the earth clean of all rebellion against him. Righteousness has achieved its intended end. Judgment for some, but a new start for others. The same thing happens in the book of Jonah. Jonah's name in Hebrew actually means dove. And in the Jonah story, he gets thrown into the water, almost as a kind of offering to assuage God's anger and to rescue the lives of the sailors who were traveling with him. Once again, the symbolism is really powerful. Righteousness achieves its intended end. Judgment for some and a new start for others. And if we apply that kind of logic to Jesus' baptism, I think we start to get somewhere. What is the intended end of righteousness in the gospel stories? What is it that God wants to achieve by sending his son into the world? Judgment for some, for sure. God isn't in the business of forcing us to repent against our wills. Many people live and die believing that they have nothing to repent for. And if God turns out to exist at the end, they will be ready with a long list of things for which they will be expecting him to repent. But whatever our expectation, the Bible tells us that righteousness will still come to its intended end. We might not be expecting judgment, but we surely will experience it. And yet the intended end of righteousness is not just judgment is it it's judgment for some but a new start for others for those who recognize their brokenness and their need of God's mercy and I think that's that it's that new start that Jesus has in mind here at his baptism for righteousness to achieve its intended end and to make that new start people possible the sins of God's people need to be dealt with don't they the sins that are symbolically washed away when a repentant person goes down into the water and is baptized, can't just be forgotten. God doesn't say, oh, never mind. Let's just pretend it didn't happen. How would you react if a mercifully minded judge said something like that to a person who just stole $20,000 from your grandmother? It's not justice, is it? It doesn't solve anything to say, oh, let's just pretend it didn't happen. Because it did. And your grandmother can't afford to live in her house anymore because of it. Sin has consequences. Baptism doesn't symbolize God turning a blind eye to sin. It symbolizes God dealing with it. And it's that process to which I think Jesus is committing himself here in this text in an incredible radical way. You see, in every other baptism in history, when the candidate has gone down into the water, it symbolized the fact that they were truly dirty And when they've come back up, it symbolized their willingness to be counted clean. But in this unique instance, in the baptism of Jesus, I think the symbolism is reversed. I think that when he went down into the water, it symbolized the fact that he was truly clean. And when he came back up, it symbolized his willingness to be counted dirty. Baptism, of course, is only ever a symbol. 
We can't come away from this text saying, oh, this is the moment at which Jesus picked up the burden of human sin. The Bible doesn't tell us exactly how or when that happened. But that mustn't stop us being gripped by the power of the imagery. As I worked on this, I couldn't stop myself wondering what Jesus experienced under the water and wondering how he summoned up the strength to stand again, carrying what he found down there. Because at the bottom of the Jordan, it's as if Jesus found the sins that have been washed away in every baptismal font in history. And as he came up out of the water, it was as if he declared himself willing to bear them. Here at the very beginning of his ministry, he steps up and proclaims his willingness to carry the burden that's going to cost him his life at the end. And in this way, I think we begin to see the miraculous truth of the gospel, that God did not turn a blind eye to the sin of his people, but instead placed the responsibility for it on his own son. Jesus came into the world to bear the weight of our thanklessness and our unconcern. And he died to pay down the consequences of it to the very last drop. That's the reason why anyone here this morning who's considering baptism can go for it with confidence. Because this great symbol of our sins being washed away here is underwritten by the still greater symbol of Jesus taking them up. And by his willingness to be mocked and beaten and killed to pay for them all. So in a way, John the Baptist and all the prophets before him were right, weren't they, to sound the tornado warning. Jesus did come to burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire and to lay the axe to the root of the trees. What John didn't see was only the most mysterious part of it all, the most mysterious and the most wonderful, that Jesus came to take our place and to offer himself to the full force of the storm. Jesus came to bear our iniquities and carry our sorrows, literally to pick them up out of the water where we leave them and march with them all the way to the cross. And that seems to be uh, really clearly what God has in mind when we hear the voice from heaven that speaks after Jesus comes up out of the water. The quote, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased, is a kind of composite built up from three different references in the Old Testament. The first piece, this is my son, comes from Psalm 2, and it looks forward, like John and the rest of the prophets did, to the coming of God's promised king, the Messiah. Here's the quote in full. He said to me, you are my son. Today I've become your father. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. And that makes sense, doesn't it? That's telling us that John wasn't wrong. When God's king king comes, he will overthrow the rule of men and women. He will smash the whole self-sufficient project that began in the Garden of Eden and that has ended in tragic consequences for all humanity. He's already doing it, and we're part of it. But that's not all. The second phrase, this is my son whom I love, well, that takes us back to Genesis, back to the day when God asked Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac wonder if you remember that whole story that gives us such a powerful picture of the cross. Take your son, said God, your only son whom you love, and go to the region of Moria to sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on the mountain that I will show you. And so the two of them set out together with Isaac carrying the wood for the sacrifice on his own back. After three days walking, they finally arrive at the place uh, where modern-day Jerusalem is situated, It's possible that they even climbed the very hill on which Jesus was crucified. Abraham tied his son to the altar and he raised the knife. And then God provided a substitute. God provided an animal to take the hit in Isaac's place. For sure, a sacrifice was made that day, but it was not Isaac. And isn't that exactly what we're learning now from the baptism uh, as we have it recorded here in Matthew Jesus' baptism paves the way for his substitution in our place. By rights, we should be the people facing the responsibility for the sinful wreckage we've made of our own lives and of the world around us. But by going down into the water and coming back up again, Jesus declares his willingness to exchange places with us. 
The third, third phrase spoken by the voice from heaven clarifies that, I think, beyond all doubt. With the words, with him I am well pleased, uh, God is quoting from Isaiah chapter 42, from the introduction, actually, to one of the most famous sections in the whole Old Testament, uh, Isaiah's servant songs. And it goes like this. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one with whom I am well pleased. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. A smouldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. And in his teaching the nations will put their hope. And who is this character, this servant that Isaiah introduces? He's the same character that Isaiah describes later as the Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the one who is despised and abhorred by his people and yet before whom princes will ultimately bow down. He's the same character who knows the word that sustains the weary and who sets his face like flint towards obedience even when he's beaten and spat at. He's the same character who is pierced for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. He bears the punishment due to us and by doing so brings us peace. The servant is the sin-bearing substitute that God has provided to undo all the evil fruits of the fall. And Jesus' baptism tells us he's now arrived. And that makes sense, I think, of what happens next. Immediately after Jesus' baptism, we read that he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And as he goes now with his baptism in the rearview mirror, we're keenly aware, aren't we, of the appalling weight that he's come into this world to carry. He's carrying the responsibility for humanity. He's carrying the hopes of everyone who will trust him. That's what his baptism teaches us, isn't it? But it also makes him vulnerable to attack. Because Satan has seen many situations like this before, at least I imagine he liked to think he had. In the garden, he saw Adam and Eve bearing the responsibility for all of their descendants, and he pounced. And that parallel has profound relevance for us, don't you think? Because if we have any hope in Jesus ourselves, if we're hoping that our sins here in the 21st century might somehow be born on the first century shoulders of this man, Jesus, We need to appreciate that what we're reading about here is a life and death moment for us, not just for him. If Jesus fails here, all our hopes are worthless. But do you remember Satan also pulled a move like this on the people of Israel after God liberated them from Egypt? And in fact, the two stories are strikingly similar. In the garden, Satan focused his attention on the physical appetites of humanity, didn't he? He offered Adam and Eve this desirable, forbidden fruit. He told them that it was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and when they saw that, they ate it. And the same thing happens in Exodus. After only a few weeks of traveling in the desert, just a few weeks after seeing God part the Red Sea to save them, for goodness sake, the Israelites began to grumble against Moses, saying, if only we died by the Lord's hand in Egypt There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food that we wanted. You've brought us out into this desert to starve the entire assembly to death. Satan delights to exploit our physical weaknesses. And now with Jesus, we see he begins in exactly the same spot, doesn't he? Tempting him to make the stones become bread. Very, very telling. C.S. Lewis argues that there's a lesson for us to learn here about Satan's tactics. In the Screwtape Letters, Uh, C.S. Lewis pictures Satan as a spirit who's repulsed by the fact that God has placed his image in physical creatures like us. Satan despises God for it, and he despises us as the product of it. He's outraged by this bastardization of true spirituality. He's incensed that the angels no longer possess spiritual life uniquely, and he's determined to show God the error of his ways by attacking our physical vulnerability. I find that a helpful idea. It teaches me that when I give way to physical temptation, to greed or to lust, all I'm doing is just jacking up the conceit of Satan. I'm giving him a reason to say to God, I told you so. 
And that motivates me to say, I want no part of that. But however helpful that insight is, however motivating, it's all just rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic unless something more fundamental happens. You see, the first of these two Old Testament parallels that's in play here involves me. Adam and Eve were carrying the responsibility for all of us when they fell in the garden. When they fell, we fell with them. We bear the family likeness. Every day our thoughts and actions show us how wrapped up our hearts are in that original sin. I challenge anyone to say that they don't feel they're well represented by Adam and Eve. I do exactly the kind of stuff that they did and worse all the time. So the question of questions here is not some abstract matter about the way God has united the physical and the spiritual in Adam and Eve. The question is whether our connection to them can be undone. We're born with it. Can it ever be broken? Well, that's what's going on here in our text. At his baptism, Jesus took up the responsibility for human sin. He wound the clock back. He forced Satan to accept a rematch. And now the two fighters step into the ring for a truly titanic contest. This is King Kong versus Godzilla. This is a Saruman versus Gandalf. But it doesn't start looking good for Jesus, does it? Remember, when Adam faced Satan, he was in a garden full of good things. There was nothing that Adam needed that he didn't have right to hand. But Jesus faces Satan now after 40 days of fasting. He's tired. He's emaciated. Remember, Adam faced Satan counted clean. But Jesus faces Satan now counted dirty. After his baptism, we see the truth about Jesus' life more clearly, don't we? He is like Frodo carrying the ring. The awful weight of representing us is on him now. He's burdened by it. He's conscious of it. Remember, Adam faced Satan as a representative of perfect humanity, the crown of a creation that was very good in God's eyes. But Jesus faces Satan now as the representative of fallen humanity. He stands for sinful Israel, forgetful Israel, complaining Israel, the Israel that spent 40 years in the wilderness. He's bearing everything that you and I ever did. And now suddenly he's face to face with this ancient monster. And Satan tries to throw the hole on him that has subdued every other opponent that he's ever gone in against. If you are the son of God, he says, tell these stones to become bread. But listen now, and if you trust him, pitch your own sin bound up with Jesus as he responds. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You shall not pass. Do you see that then Jesus rejects the whole self-sufficient agenda that's characterized human life since the fall? His message to Satan is that God is sufficient. And even the way that he delivers it reinforces that same message. His response here, as it is with each of the three temptations, is to confront Satan with the words that God spoke to his people during their temptations in the desert. The first one comes from Deuteronomy 8. Let me read it to you. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years, says Moses, to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart whether you would or would not keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known, to teach you that man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. The Israelites blew it. They didn't learn that lesson. They weren't humbled. They died in the desert. But this new representative of humanity is all over it. His words declare it. His life demonstrates it. Satan throws his signature move and he's thwarted. But only for a moment. His response is a kind of classic judo trick, absorbing the momentum of Jesus' defense and turning it into attack. Jesus has revealed now his dependence on God's words and Satan interprets that as a point of weakness. If you're leaning so heavily on what God has said, Jesus, if you're trusting these ancient documents all written so long ago, all so vulnerable to misinterpretation. 
maybe you ought to just check they're really about you. In fact, here's a little prophecy that's just crying out for fulfillment in a situation like this. Set your mind at ease. Take control. Throw yourself down and watch the angels take care of you. It's nasty, isn't it? Can you picture Jesus facing that with your own sin on his shoulders? The Old Testament repeatedly teaches us that we need a Messiah, a king who is brave. God says to Joshua, whose name Jesus shares, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. And later on, Joshua's people say back to him, whatever uh, you have commanded us, we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go only if you be strong and courageous. Those words are not recorded in Joshua to tell us what we're supposed to be. They're recorded in Joshua to tell us what our saviour needs to be. What kind of king we need to look for. And maybe here now we begin to see why. Everything in Jesus must have been screaming out, maybe he's right. Maybe I should check. Wouldn't it be dreadful if I set out to represent all of these people and found that I couldn't do it? A little confirmation would help so much. But he will not do it. In fact, he responds with probably the all-time theological slam down. Satan is quoting a Psalm 91 here, isn't he? Nice move, Satan. Well, not if you quote it in blatant contradiction of Deuteronomy 6. And Jesus knows that. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. That's what he says and just blows away the plausibility of Satan's whole argument by knowing his Bible well, knowing how to handle it well. My heart's desire is that each of us would be equipped like that. Do you feel that? Do you need help? Ask us if you want it. The answer that Jesus provides here from Deuteronomy was written about 500 years before the psalm that Satan quotes. And yet Jesus knows that both of these passages uh, come from the same unchanging God. And so he will not let them stand in contradiction. He's just not persuaded. He won't let Satan take the psalm out of context. He forces him to interpret it in the light of the other things that God has revealed. And by using those tools, admittedly at lightning speed, well, he carries your record and my record just one step closer to the finish line. Verses 8 and 9 of chapter 4 then describe the third and final temptation. Satan winds up for what he hopes now is going to be the decisive blow. How? Well, by drawing attention to us. Satan offers Jesus what is his by right. He offers Jesus what he willingly left behind when he came into the world. Splendor, praise, a glorious kingdom. But Satan knows that Jesus has now put a dreadful obstacle between himself and ever experiencing that again. Jesus has bound himself to you and me. He's the ring bearer. He's taken up the burden of human sin. And the only way back to where he came from is to destroy it at the cross. And so Satan whispers in his ear, you don't have to go through with this. Think of the terrible pain that it will involve. Think of the humiliation You know enough of these ungrateful wretches to know that they will never truly appreciate what it is that you plan to do. Let them go. Go drop their sinfulness back in the Jordan where it belongs and have the glory you deserve another way. So do you see it again? Your own sin hanging on this man's shoulders, everything in the balance right at that moment. Because Satan has a point, doesn't he? Has Jesus ever had the kind of appreciation from you and me that the great sacrifice that he made on our behalf truly deserves? And Jesus knew that. Jesus knew that we wouldn't understand it. He knew that we would often forget him, even after all of this. And yet listen to the answer that he gives and hear the declaration of your own freedom at the end of this ordeal. Hear the words that confirmed a new candidate on the ballot to represent humanity. The words that put Jesus Christ alongside Adam as a contender for the headship of your life. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So do you see what we have here in this section of the text that introduces us to the adult life of Jesus for the first time? 
the Jesus who came striding out of obscurity in Nazareth and met John at the Jordan was every bit the king that the Old Testament expected. As John predicted, he came to clear his thrashing floor, to gather the wheat into his barn and to burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. But the wonder of it is that Jesus knew those Old Testament expectations better than even John did. Jesus knew that the wheat, which represents us, could only be gathered into his barn at the payment of a terrible price. And in his first coming, the payment of that price was his objective. When Jesus walked down to the banks of the Jordan in Matthew 3, there's no doubt that the axe was laid to the root of the tree, just as John foresaw. But the wonder is that Jesus laid it to the root of the tree of his own life, that our lives might be spared. He went down into the water as a symbol of his willingness to take up out of there what we are commanded to leave behind. And he carried that burden through the very worst that Satan could throw at him, and he prevailed. That's the hope that might encourage some of you to think about getting baptized this morning. Do you want to be part of that? Have you said that to other people already at some point in your life? Maybe today might be the day. You can step into that tank in the confidence that everything you need to be cleansed from if you want to be reconciled to God was taken up by Jesus on your behalf and destroyed forever at the cross. Let's pray. Jesus, we bow our knees at your feet uh, because we recognize that there has never been love or strength or power or kindness like this. Lord, there is no comparison and it makes us just want to worship you. And I know in my own uh, circumstances, it makes me want to serve you with all my heart. And I pray, God, that that might be true for every one of us in this room. Jesus, you are our king. Have our sword for what it's worth. We bow the knee before you and would be used for your glory. In Jesus' name. Stand to your feet. I should come down. We're going to take an offering.
face is shining on us, Lord. You promise that you won't turn your face from us. We bless you. Now we're asking in a real tangible way for those who will be baptized right now that you would let them know, have relational experience of you, God, being for them and not against them. Of you, God, having your face shining and facing them and not turned in disgust and dismay. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. Good morning. Thanks. This is, these are just really exciting days, services, when we, when we get to observe baptisms and, and celebrate with each other as family. And uh, I'm going to say the same thing I said in the first service. Um, let's celebrate this morning as family members, um, making huge, um, ground-shaking statements um, in, the, in, in the spiritual realm. And, um, but on top of that as family, for us to be able to come around those, we had two men of God um, Tyler Howe and Nate Visser get baptized in the first service. Um, pray for them. And now for Shay Brown, who's going to get baptized, and anybody else who comes up after her, pray for them as they, as they make this statement, this strong statement of faith and belief in, in Jesus Christ. Um, they need that. They need to be surrounding these next weeks, days, uh, months coming up as they make these statements. So um, we'll start with you, Shay. I'm going to give you stay a little closer to the surface. It's a little warmer. <laughs> we can float a little bit here. Um, this is Shay Brown. And Shay, you've been a part of our family for um, a little while now. Um, but uh, I was down the, down the hallway and you were outside and you said, today's the day I want to be baptized. So why, why today? Why do you want to be baptized today, Shay? Because I remember that song. I surrender all. I surrender all, all to Jesus, my precious Savior. I surrender all. So I surrender all my sins to Jesus, and I just want to follow Jesus. And I, I got baptized as a young girl, but I didn't really know what Jesus was really about. So I'm just getting baptized as an older person now. Putting a stake in the ground, aren't you? Praise God. So, Shay, you, you shared with me a little bit about what baptism means to you, but uh, I want to ask you this. What does that look like for you to follow Jesus with your heart, soul, mind, to surrender to him? What's that look like for you? It's, it looks like I'm stepping in the right direction. Praise God. Well, Shay, because of your faith in Jesus and your desire to follow him with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, I baptize you in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Is that it, Brad? That's how we're going to end today. Stand your feet with me.
will always be enough and nothing compares to your serve him only and then the devil left him and angels came and attended him and from that time on Jesus began to preach repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near and Jesus that's our hope that message of repentance that the kingdom of heaven has come near that it's blazed into this world that was a wreck that was doomed and has made a way out made a way in more a way that we can reach to our neighbours that we can transform what's going on around us by the spirit of God Lord, that your creation might be redeemed and reclaimed that your name might be lifted high that we might be what we were made to be ambassadors of the living God that's our hope Jesus that's the blessing you speak over us and our prayer is that you might make us then messengers of that truth to our neighbours, to our street corners. Fill our hearts, our lives, our mouths with this truth. And Lord, give those around us uh, ears to hear it, that they might be rescued, that there might be many people in heaven in a thousand years' time from the streets and houses around where we live, because we have the opportunity to speak to them the incomparable name of King Jesus. Amen.